You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome everyone to the 602 Club coming at you from deep space. I'm not actually sure where we are. Uh, we were woken up randomly. I'm not sure why we're even awake yet. Um, all I know is it's time to eat and this food is awful. Uh, I'm so glad to be here on the Nostromo with uh, some wonderful people to talk the very first alien movie with me. And to do that, um, gosh, we've got the one and only... The music maestro himself, Brandon Shamatola. Hey, Ruby, can I get some coffee? It's the only thing good on this ship. We we don't serve coffee here. Remember, Brandon, what? this is the 602 Club. We we only serve hard alcohol or beer. Oh, I don't like wine. the booze here. The coffee's the only thing good on this ship. <laughs> we'll give you an Irish coffee. How about that? Okay, I can okay. handle that. <laughs> and for the first time here in the 602 Club, I'm so excited to talk to the one and only Amy Nelson. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am so very happy to be here. Uh, 602 Club was one of the first uh, podcasts that I started listening to on the network. So this is a milestone for me. Awesome. Awesome. Do you remember your first episode? Uh, no, I don't. But they're all so good. And I continue to listen to them. So Oh, uh, see, she's learned. Suck up to the host. You know, I mean, she'll be back. Uh, so <laughs> it's funny you say that because I have to go back and look at all the things we've done because this is episode one twenty three. But with all the supplementals, it's over. It's over one fifty now. now. Yeah. So I mean, I, I have trouble remembering everything that we've talked about. So yeah, I listened to all the six or two episodes of. I remember my first one was when you talked about Pan. Oh uh, yeah. That was the nice. first one. You're that one I of the few to. people who listened to that episode. That's great. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I've gone. I've gone back and listened to them all. And um, you know, I, I messaged you. I said, you know, I don't really follow the Marvel universe and stuff, but I still listen because it's a uh, good shows and good conversations. So thanks, man. Well, I appreciate that, and I'm I'm so glad to have both of you here. Uh, before we dive into Alien, not Aliens or Alien Three or a Resurrection or uh, a Prometheus, none of that. Just the original Alien. That's what we're talking about tonight. Uh, you can find all the shows uh, here on Trek FM on iTunes at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. We are a feature provider. You can also find us on Twitter at Trek FM. And then we're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM. There's the listeners only discussion group where you can find all three of us. We hang out there a lot. It's the Babel Conference. Just type Babel into the search field on Facebook or if you go over our website at trek.fm and you're on any of our show pages, you can click discussion on the menu bar and that will bring you to the group. And last but not least, if you want to send a long form email about maybe why you love Alien, like maybe it's your favorite movie ever, or maybe you just hate this movie so much, you need to vent about it. Go to trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose the 602 Club, and that will come straight to me and the hosts on that week. So... I wanted to start off because, you know, when we do a movie that's been around for a long time, this movie is as old as I am, so 1979, and also, hey, the year that uh, the motion picture came out, so that's a good year I was born, you know, like they realized that they were uh, birthing a, a person who was going to be into this stuff. Um <laughs> I love going back through the history of this, and, and it was interesting because I was thinking about the time period that Alien comes out. And we've just had Star Wars be a massive hit in 77. And Paramount, obviously, I'm sure if anybody's in anybody in the industry at that point was well aware that they were making Star Trek the motion picture. So space is making a comeback. And so it's very interesting that Dan O'Bannon has this idea of wanting to do a movie about an alien. And his real desire was he just wanted to try and do a movie that had a really realistic alien he's working on Jakorsky's uh adaptation of dune that never gets made 
Uh, and what really inspires him then, uh, because he doesn't really know what this alien's going to be, was uh, Geiger. In all of his wonderful design work, he decided that the script was going to be about that kind of monster. And I thought that was fascinating, but what was really interesting when I was reading about him was that basically he stole every idea from every science fiction movie from like back in the 30s all the way through to that time period. He just took all of those ideas about monster alien movies and just threw them all into one movie and we get alien. I thought that was so fantastic. And so like, I don't have any, have either of you guys seen uh, Forbidden Planet? Yes. Okay. No. So, yeah, totally realized watching this, Brandon, that he completely gets half the ideas for Alien from Forbidden Planet. Oh, man, it's been so long. I don't even remember Forbidden Planet. Like, I I know I've seen it and I have it on HD DVD. I've only seen it once, but it's been a long time for it. But yeah, I think that's, there's a lot of pacing that's very similar in Forbidden Planet. Like, it's kind of slow and moody, if I remember correctly, but it's, again. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. So, um, and this is funny because I just watched for Blitten Planet about three or four weeks ago. That's sort of Leslie Nielsen and the robot, right? Yeah, yes, it's it's yes. fantastic. I mean, Leslie Nielsen being not funny, which was, you know, we're used to just him, at least for me, it's like Lethal Gun or Lethal Weapon. Um, lethal Gun, excuse me. Lethal right? Weapon. No, lethal not weapon. Uh, Naked Gun. Naked Gun. Naked Gun. Thank you. It's one of those movies with a gun in the title. Couldn't remember. Uh, so, yeah, I'm just used to him being funny. But the whole premise of that movie is that they're out in space and they are a part of the like the United Space Earth Agency, whatever. And they're going to this planet where this uh, other group had already landed and um, they're going to check it out. And they get a warning saying, don't don't come near our planet. Don't land. Don't, you know, just leave. And they're attacked, of course, by this weird force throughout the movie, and they can't figure it out until the very end. So it, it's very interesting because that's pretty much the plot of Alien. Like, they get woken up. They find, like, don't come here. They don't get the, they don't, you know, translate the message right until they land and everything is goes haywire. But I just thought that that was really interesting how many things from the past they pull. And, and like, he, he was legitimately upfront about it. He's like, you know, I didn't steal from anybody. He's like, I stole from everybody. <laughs> That's awesome. So question about that then. So I had heard, I have never read it. But I believe that Forbidden Planet is based on The Tempest, isn't it? I've never read The Tempest. That's a good question, and I'd have to go research that, and I haven't done my Forbidden Planet research. Amy, you're a uh, teacher. Come on, you know all Shakespeare then, don't you? Well, I'm a math teacher, so let's be oh, clear okay. on that. <laughs> yeah, they're, they don't really, they're not really known for putting Shakespeare in their <laughs> like algebraic equations. Have you right, read The so. Tempest, Matt? <laughs> I haven't um, read it. I have not read that okay, one. Okay, so I was I, I, since you make that comparison, I'd be curious to know then how much of that plot from Forbidden Planet that has carried over into Alien is based on the Tempest. That'd be interesting to check yeah, out after the good, fact. Here. That's a good thought. I, now everybody, write down for your homework. You're gonna go and you're gonna read Shakespeare. That's right. The Six O Two Club talking about Alien gave you Shakespeare homework. Alien is inspired you, by Shakespeare. Wow. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, we'll just we'll say it's a thing. It's on the internet now, so everybody has to believe it. Uh, <laughs> so, kind of talking about that alien history, I wondered for you guys, you know, because we're all over the place in age range on the show, which is wonderful. And I'm wondering what your personal history was with Alien. What about you, Brandon? So, I didn't actually see Alien until I was well into my teens. My first experience with Alien was actually probably when I was about 9 or 10. And the first experience I had with the Xenomorph was in Spaceballs. I don't know if you remember Spaceballs. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but, Who doesn't remember Spaceballs the movie? But that scene in the end, we had rented it. My dad had rented for us. And we're watching this movie. I'm, like, way too young for this movie. There's just foul language left and right in this movie. Terrible jokes. And then this end scene happens when they go to this diner and this guy's chest, like, explodes. I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I remember. I was just like, <gasps> 
what is going on? So when I eventually watched Alien, it didn't have quite the same impact for me because uh, Mel Brooks stole it from me. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) I totally love that. So, I mean, uh, you, you did see it finally. What ended up being your kind of like first impression? What, what did, what impression did Alien leave you with? This movie scared me when I was a kid. Like, there's a couple of really great scenes in here. And I tried watching it when I watched this last week here um, as a new viewer. And I was trying to watch it as a new viewer for the first time again. And the pacing is so well done. And the movie is so quiet. You know, the movie isn't, except for the chestburster scene, it's really not that violent. You know, the kills that happen are quick and you don't really see a lot. The only really violent scene in this movie is the chestburster scene. And it's all done with darkness and moodiness and what you don't see and what's left to your imagination. And it's wonderful. What about you, Amy? I, like Brandon, was pretty young and I think a little too young because I was, again, just scared to death. It was very scary and that sort of turned me away from all scary movies because I was just terrified. And it's, it, it is, it's that silent and the darkness and, you know, the different angles. And so you're always looking behind your back and you're telling, look behind you and, you know, and so yeah, it, it, yeah, scarred me as a, as a child. And yeah. It was very scary. You know, it's funny, Brandon, because before we were recording, you're like, I got a funny story about, you know, uh, the first time with Alien. And your experience with Alien is my experience with Alien. <laughs> Who would have known uh, that? Because I'm, I'm right there with you. I saw Spaceballs first. That's funny. Because, of course, I'm, you know, the huge Star Wars fan. And uh, it. It, that is a hilarious spoof of Star Wars, but Mel Brooks works in all of these other great spoofs along with that. And you're absolutely right. When the chestburster scene, the first time I saw Alien, I was a little bit older. Uh, you know, I wasn't a kid or anything. This isn't something my parents were going to let me watch back in the day. So I had to wait and see it. And I was probably a teenager, probably early teenager at that point, uh, 14, 15, 16, something like that. So. By the time I get to this, you know, I, I don't like scary movies. That's not, I, I don't like horror movies in general, even now as an adult. That's not my thing. And so seeing this, um, I think in some ways that kind of did ruin the chestburster scene for me because I was, I knew what was coming. And you're absolutely right. I think one of the things that this movie does so well is it doesn't have to be overly graphic or violent. It's the imagination which it leaves you with. Like, you're imagining all the bad things that are happening because it's showing you just enough for your your mind to fill in the gaps to where you're like, oh my God, that's so gross. <laughs> Especially since, I, you know, I mean, let's be honest. In today's standards, the alien's not all that scary looking. It kind of looks dumb when you see it. Like, when you actually see that there's really just a person in that suit, it's not as scary. I mean, especially at the very end, I was like, oh, there legitimately really is just a person in a suit. That No wonder they didn't show them very much. There's that one scene <laughs> right at the end. I think it's when he's going at Veronica Cartwright's character. And it's like just this one quick shot. And it's just like his the alien's arms are just out like this, and mm-hmm. it's just like, eh, and it's just weird. Like it looks so kind of phony when he does it, right? But it's only a quick cut, and it's really the only shot that I think is kind of silly for the alien myself. I don't know. I think the alien still works for me, and I still think it's quite the frightening beast. I think the fr- most frightening thing about it is is the alien sweat that it has. Like you know, the fact that it's just always dripping. Yeah. That just creeps me out. I, just, I there's something about that. Uh, yeah, uh, it's giving me the willies right now. Just thinking about it. <laughs> One of the things uh, that is is really interesting about this movie, and this comes from me not having seen this movie till I was, you know, sixteen, which honestly is half a li- more than half a lifetime ago, and I forgot 
how many people are in this movie? Like, the cast is pretty stellar. I mean, you know, Ian Holm, John Hurt, Sigourney Weaver, Tom Skerritt, all of these people that I have seen in so many other things, uh, Henry Dean Stanton, uh, you know, I mean, it just, the list is, is wonderful. And so I wanted to ask both of you, you know, this movie is so well known, but watching it again, what are some of the character traits that really stood out to you with this cast? Um, as uh, getting the chance to rewatch it. And Brandon, you said, as we're talking about for the show, you're trying to watch this maybe as a new viewer. So what kind of jumped out at you about all of these people? The acting in this movie is outstanding. And I don't know how Ridley Scott managed to get some of these performances out of them. But Yafet Kato is absolutely amazing in this film as Parker. Just the way that he talks and the way that he moves, the relationship that he has with Harry Dean Stanton's character is completely believable. Like all these people and the way that they're acting, it feels like these people are doing this job. He just set the camera on the table and hit record. When they're having that meeting near the end, when there's just the four of them left, and Sigourney Weaver is like getting mad at Yafet Kato. And she's like, well, you listen to me, pucker. You know, like just the way that she's yelling at him and the tone that she's using, like that's not, that's not acting. That's, that's life. You know, like I've had my mom yell at me that way when I was a kid. And it's like, well, you listen to me, Brandon. And, you know, like, I don't know. So maybe it's, that's just my experience. But the, the acting in this is amazing. And every single person in this movie is just outstanding. Agreed. I like uh, Tom Skerritt, where he's you. He you believe that he is the captain. I mean, he is taking care of his crew the best of his ability, making good decisions, and you know, I just to see that and then to lose him in the movie, you know, to not have him come out at the end was pretty sad for me because I thought he did such a good job in giving directions and, and really owning that he was the captain of the Nostromo. I like what both of you are pointing out because something that struck me about the movie was the realistic nature of, of the performances that this really does feel like, and you can put so many different, things on it whether it, it's kind of like this oil derrick type feel or you know um you know a ship at sea or any of those kind of things that we would see today you know i mean gosh we have even shows about that kind of stuff you know there's probably a show about oil derricks and there's you know uh there's the crab fisherman show and all that kind of stuff you, this feels like those type of people you know, uh, but it was, what was also interesting to me was the way in which they kind of captured that, uh, the different class levels that come in those kind of jobs where you have the truly blue collar worker and then the upper level management in the, in the ship and those, that clash that they have. And I thought that was really fascinating to see. You know, I mean, it's interesting, this movie set in the future and all that, uh, the future, um, uh, that was in air quotes for everybody who can't see me, dink, dink, air quotes, um, but it felt like the movie was just taking place on a fantastical place, but all of the issues were exactly the same thing that anybody in the late 70s was probably feeling. And I thought that was really interesting. And I think it's something that, you know, I don't know how, it's really not all that different today, really. So I, I thought that the performances played with that so well, especially when, like you said, Amy, of Tom Skerritt, who's the captain, he's definitely in charge. But you also know he's not the guy who's really in charge because it's, you know, the ship that's in charge. It's this crazy mother, mother that's in charge. Um, and, you know, like Sigourney Weaver or Ash, who are in the science division and everything. Uh, it's just, it's so interesting, the dynamic that they get from all these people. And like you said, Brandon, uh, Parker is fantastic. 
Brett is fantastic. These characters, they they don't feel like characters at all, I didn't feel like. And that's something that's really hard to do in a movie that has become an archetype now for other types of movies like this. Well, I think you can really see that authenticity because you they each bring to their character the motivation as to why they're out there. And so it's like, well, okay, well, I'm going to do this. My, I better get more pay because that's not in my regular scheduled, you know, tasks. And so each of them have their own motivations as to why they're there and what they're doing with the company and with Mother. And so it does. It brings that level of authenticity and realism to the movie. Right. And and the actions that they do, when, when Parker and Brett are down in that underground, uh, underground, not underground, but uh, bottom area of the ship, and Sigourney Weaver's like, I'm going to come down there and Brett's like, what is she going to do? <laughs> you know, like she better stay out of my way. Right. Like I, I work with people and people talk like that. You know, that's how people talk. I work in a union environment. And when I was out in the plant, that's how people talk. They're like, what is this guy going to do? He better stay away from me and let me do my job. And when they're talking to her and they're just standing there and they've got that steam blowing off and they're like yelling at her and pretending to not hear her. And as soon as she walks away, they just shut the steam off like it's not broken. I don't know. Like that's just that's such a level of believability that blue collar workers like this would do because I've worked with people like this. You know, I don't know. It's fascinating. It's so well done. It's so well done. It made for a really interesting thing. And I like that you brought that up, Amy, because each of these characters is there for, you know, their own reasons. And I thought it was very interesting because, again, you do hear that in real life. Well, I better get paid for that. You know, like, uh, you know, I'm, I, that's not part of my contract. And then I love how they get brought up that, oh, that's actually part of subsection B, paragraph D. And they're like, well, you know, and I can't say that word something that they said on the show. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, they're, they're like, F that, you're going to pay me more for this, you know. And I just, I thought, again, that, that is something that transcends this film as a science fiction movie or science fiction horror movie, but it also transcends even just where this movie takes place in the, the late 70s to today because we still have that that distinction, you know? We still have that disconnect sometimes between the two different levels, between maybe a blue collar and a white collar, and there not necessarily always being a lot of room in between those, you know? And uh, I, I think America has even seen the distinction between that just in the last, you know, three or four months between who all of that. And so I, I thought that that made this a really interesting movie to watch, uh, to see that happen. And I also thought it was interesting too, you know, we all come from a Star Trek universe. Uh, we, we are on a Star Trek network here. <laughs> and it's very interesting to see people in space that, you know, it's not even like Star Wars where they're uh, in a space fantasy, you know. These people don't care that they're in space. They're just there to make some money. It's the best way to make money. And it was just fascinating to me to try and think that through, that we would ever achieve a level of space travel where it was like, that's the, just what we do to make money. Like, I don't know. Like, I guess it, this is not the future that I want to be in personally. <laughs> Well, I was thinking it's just a long-term job or like a deployment, you know? I mean, they're going out, they have X number of days, weeks, years, and then they come back and pick up their life where they left off. So it, it gets that sense that, yeah, this is just a job. Yeah, we'll be in deep sleep and, you know, so we don't have to live through the travel time. But it just seems like, okay, I'm going to go out, do this job, make a buttload of money, and then come back and enjoy my spoils, so... Yeah, I think it's a believable future. Like, it's a used future, right? Like, everything's yes. used and dirty. And yes. I, I think that the way that humanity has priorities on, you know, resources and stuff, that this is something that we will do when we get into space is we're going to go and mine places, you know? I find it a little unbelievable that there's only seven people on this ship, you know, from what I think that they're doing. I think there should be a lot more. But, I mean, I, I don't hold that against the movie because... You know, you can't have a cast of 100 people in this movie, and then it doesn't have the same effect, right? But I believe that this is something that we will do in the future when we eventually get space travel. We're going to go and we're going to strip mine other planets. Well, and I think, uh, you know, bring 
you bring up something that's really interesting, Brandon. I think it's a great time to talk about it. You know, we're talking about this dichotomy and 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 uh, between blue collar, white collar, and where these characters are in the movie. But that kind of leads us right into the look and the feel of the movie. And something that I was reading that they said that they wanted is they basically wanted this to feel like a space truck. You know, this isn't ice road truckers, it's space lane truckers. I mean, that's what they wanted the movie to feel like. Like you said, um, you know, Star Wars had just come out two years before this. So that lived-in universe really worked for Star Wars, and it definitely works for this movie. It makes it feel so legitimate and real like like you said yeah you go out there and you mine asteroids and you come back and you get your paycheck and you hopefully go on with your life and uh the money must be good enough that you'd want to give up relativity time so that when you got back probably everybody you knew was like old or dead uh depending on how far you're going out Mm -hmm. so because yeah like when they woke up they were still 10 months away from earth Right when they woke up in the middle there, right? So they were gone for probably, I would say, probably 10 years, maybe, right? Who knows? But we're guessing. Well, and the whole feel of their ship and everything, it just, it makes it feel like, oh, well, they've done this before. That this isn't a brand new ship. This isn't the first time they've done this. That they've gone out before and come back. And and I like that feel that it makes it more believable. It's like, okay, we're just going on. This is your average run-of-the-mill you know, go find another planet and come back. And, and so I like that it is, it's that lived in universe. It's like just in, so this is out of the ordinary, what they, what's happening, you know? Well, even Tom Skerritt's character says that uh, Sigourney Weaver's questioning him about the doctor and have you ever worked with this doctor before? And he says, no, I u- I've used the same doctor all these times. And like two weeks before we shipped out or two days before we shipped out or whatever, they switched him with Ash. So clearly this captain's been on multiple trips as well. So yeah, you know, like this is something that they probably do. This is their career, you know, and they're going to live yeah. long lives and sleep away half of it because they're in crowd sleep or whatever, but they're rich. Yeah, I mean, on, and honestly, there's nothing like waking up with a space diaper on and boob tape. Did anybody else notice that? How uncomfortable that must be? Uh, so I was like, wow, that's that's not... That almost makes me not want to do this job for sure. Uh, so, um, well, and what's interesting too, you know, we've got the movie set up with the design work from Geiger, but we really only see that design work, the, the iconic design work that we think of in the alien ship. But it's so creepy. Without being like, it's just the way he uses lines and circles, and everything about it just feels alien. And it's just so well done. I mean, I, I just, I, to me, every time you look at one of his his artistic works or anything that he did for Alien, it's just, yeah. It's like he nails creepy better than just about any other design designer out there. I, I mean, they even thought maybe some of the design work was too creepy. And I'm like, no, that's exactly what you want. Well, that ship that they find crashed, like that crescent moon shape of that ship, you've never seen anything like that before. Spaceships have never been designed in that way at any time. You'd have flying saucers and stuff when you had aliens, but this weird crescent moon design is completely unique to this universe. Yeah, yeah, no. And and uh, well, and that's the scary thing, too. So you get the... you. you it, Throughout the middle of the movie, you get this whole idea that they have been sent out there with this new doctor, uh, Ash, because it's almost as if the company knew they were going to run into this area and like they wanted them to stop there and find out whatever it was. Like they had gotten the signal before and that this is all planned. And... It really was interesting because on top of everything we were talking about with the crew and the way they interact together, you get this real sense that these people are just cogs in a wheel in a company that doesn't really care anything about them. All it cares about is its bottom line. And that was really like, 
don't know, that was really creepy. Again, when we're talking about the idea of like what we do in the future and that like, um, I guess, you know, we're just completely run by corporations who don't care about the people that work for them. All they care about the bottom line and we don't care how dangerous it is. We just feel like it could probably make us money. So you bring that back no matter what you need to do. And then you have the creepiest system. Mother feels like Hal's like child in some ways. Like they're they're related somehow, like evil, you know, uh computer programs. I can't do that, Dave. And like if if mother could talk, you'd feel like she'd be saying the same thing, you know, like that does not compute. Like, what are you, Windows Vista? Jeez, come on. Uh, that was one of the creepiest things, was that the ship is run by this massive computer thing that seemed like it was the hardest computer system on the planet to run. Like, this is what we... Uh, th that was one thing I wondered, like, really, in the future, we're still inputting data like that? Like, they couldn't think of a better... I don't know. It, it just creeped me out, though. See, I never got the Hal impression off of Mother, you know, because Hal seemed like more of an intelligence. And to me, Mother seems like more just a software that you're talking back and forth to. Uh, you know, it's a sophisticated program that, you know, only gives you the information that you're allowed to have. But I never got the evil intent out of Mother like you do out of Hal. I did get the evil intent, but I thought that it was because they were in that they w was linked to Earth, and that so that's how Mother was getting her orders. The ship's orders was through a link. So I thought of it that way. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. No, I I I'm kind of there with you. It it did feel like that Mother was in cahoots basically with Ash and the Wayland Company that, you know, like they got the signal that they had found something and, you know, and, and that's where it was very interesting because this whole idea of like cog in this wheel, like these people just end up like lambs before the slaughter, basically. <laughs> and, you know, it, it doesn't make sense at the beginning, you know, uh, why Ash lets that in. You know, because it just seems like the most boneheaded move ever. Uh, and for me, I was rewatching the movie. I was like, how stupid are these people? Like, why would you let this organism on the ship whatsoever? And even the captain, you know, he's he's saying open the door. And I'm thinking, no, why is Ripley the only smart person on this ship? Like, she's the only one with a brain who's like, no, we're, we can't let whatever it is on the ship. Like just common sense to me like i don't care how much you care about the person there you also have to think about the greater whole which is the ship and the rest of the crew and the impact on the rest of the ship like i but then of course you learn ash is a traitor and then it all makes sense that he's the one who's been playing it against them the whole time and they just never realized it and that makes it even creepier that this stinking android is uh yeah, working against you. And he, of course, he didn't even know it was an android until they beat the crap out of it. And yeah, that was, that was, that was actually probably the freakiest thing for me is them beating the, you know what, out of Ash and like him just not going down until finally they rip his head off. See, now that's the one part of this movie. Like, okay, there's, there's two parts of this movie that don't work for me. And watching it again as a first time, trying to watch it as a first time viewer, Ash being an android doesn't work for me. It's weird because there's no indication at any time. They don't mention androids at any time throughout the movie. The only thing that they mention is that Ash was replaced or, or Ash replaced this other doctor. That's all that they mention at any time. So the first time you have any indication that he's an android is that close-up shot of him and there's that milk coming down his forehead, right? It looks like milk. And you don't know what's going on. And it's it's really, really a confusing scene. And you would have you have no way of guessing anything at all until Yafakoto says, he's a robot. He's a damn robot. Like, even when he knocks his head off, you're just like, what is going on? The first time you watch this movie and when he goes psycho at that scene. So he like sneaks into that room with her 
And then he tries to kill her by like stuffing a porno magazine down her throat. Right. Like, it's just like, I don't, it's just such a weird scene. Yes. I did not know what was going on. I'm like, what's he doing with the magazine, rolling it up and stuffing it down her throat. I just, I was watching it with my brother and he's like, he's trying to suffocate her. Oh, with the okay. magazine. I just didn't know. I know. And rolled up so that you could still get air. So I thought, well, he's going to pour something and drown her. I mm. don't know. It That was confusing, but, uh, yeah, I don't think. Like, why would the company, why would the company not put more androids? Because Ash is the only one that was going to follow through with Mother's directions. And he obviously was very well apt to do everything that he needed to do. I mean, he was the only one that wasn't a cog in the wheel, if you will. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, he is the, he is the spoke on the wheel. Like he's, yeah. you know, he's the one in control of everything. They just don't know it. And and see, that's why it worked for me that he's the android. And of course, it's something that they continue to use in all of the alien movies all the way through Prometheus. And they're actually going to do it in, in the newest movie, Covenant, too. They'll have another one. Uh, Michael Fassbender is back as, as the android. But it made sense to me why the company would use an android because it seems human. Nobody knows that it's not human, but it's also the one thing on the ship that will follow the company's orders regardless of what exactly. happens. And that's what they wanted. And specifically, and that's where I put it together, you know, because again, I hadn't seen this movie in years. When he said we he got replaced, like, oh, he got replaced for a reason. The company had an inkling that this was going to happen, that they were going to run into this species and they wanted it back to the company and therefore Ash is the best way to, for them to make sure that happened. And if Ash has to kill everybody to get the, you know, the alien there, the company doesn't care. You know, they're expendable. Um, Ash is even expendable. Uh, so I just thought that was the thing that was one of the scariest parts of the whole movie these people work for a company who don't give a flying crap about them. Like it, it was that, I mean, to me, those are some of the scariest things that happen in this, not the alien, which I don't find scary at all. I mean, it's, it's creepy, but it's not necessarily scary. What's scary is the way that human beings are treating other human beings as expendable. Like, yeah. The, and for profit. Yeah, exactly. Something. So yeah, not worth it. Yeah, that that creeps me out. So, yeah, I like how they took the android and they have used it in later movies and stuff. And and, and taking this movie out of it in that one weird scene, it's like I, I watched it with my wife and she's seen it before. She hasn't seen it in a long time. And she, and while we're watching it and the scene happens, he's trying to kill her. She's like, "Why is he going crazy and trying to kill her?" I'm like, "I don't even know." Like I've seen this movie a whole bunch of times and I can't even tell you why he's trying to do it. Well, I think he's trying to kill her because she's the one who's going to stand in his way from getting the alien back to the, you know, wherever they, they, I mean, it's not necessarily stated they want it back at Earth, but the company wants that alien back because they want to turn it into a living weapon. Mm -hmm. Like, you get this feeling like it's it's for wep it's going to use it for weapons research. And so he's, Ripley is the one who's left who's going to stand in her way because they're planning on killing the alien or at least getting it out of the ship any way possible. And that's not a part of, you know, Ash or Mother's plan. Yeah. So. Okay. Works uh, for me. That's just yeah. how I read it. Okay, yeah, so, works for me. Which is also creepy. Ash, just again, is this, this super creepy thing because he talks about how this idea of illusions that the, the alien is only a survivor. Like, there's no allusions to morality. And he respects the alien because of that. And that creeped me the frick out. Because I was like, so really what you're saying is you you respect it because it has nothing but animal instinct and no nothing that would make it stop not being, like, basically a killing machine? Like, why is that respectable? Aren't we... I mean, don't we say that we're... Human beings are good because we have the ability to transcend just our base instinct. Like, I don't know. That really was another part of the movie where I just, just kind of creeped out. Yeah. See, to me, it's like the for him, it's there's no illusions. Is that this this alien has one function, 
and that's it. And that's what he respects about it. It's not going to lie to you and it's not going to manipulate you. It's just what it is is what it is. And there's no illusions. It doesn't pretend to be anything else. Yeah. And I think, I mean, don't you think that Ash being the Android, I mean, he's programmed to whatever mother says. So if mother says this alien is good, then Ash is going to say, Oh yeah, I like this alien. So I sort of got that that was a hand in hand with that as well of why Ash admired it so much was because Ash is working for the company and the company wants the alien. So I, I thought that that went what g- gave him his purpose of why he wanted this alien. But yeah, there was that awe that he had for the alien. And that was, yeah, weird. Yeah, it it was just something that I, I thought was really interesting. I think you're making a great point that, you know, Ash, who's somebody who has the illusion of being human, but isn't really human, and is programmed with the illusions of morality in himself. Uh, and obviously, he breaks what we would consider good morality because he just follows the orders he gets from the company. But on a whole... He's meant to function as a basic human being, but he is just an illusion. Uh, he's not a real person. He's not sentient. He's just a robot with programming. And um, I guess, too, if if you want to get super deep with it, that's also uh, an idea of uh, that people have about humanity, you know, that it's just programmed into us. It's uh, Morality is not real. It's just a part of the programming. Uh, you know, so yeah, we could go super deep with that. And yeah, think about, ponder that as you think about alien and, and I think it'll really mean something to you. Uh, can I just mention, uh, we, we talked a little about the look in the field and I forgot to mention sweet space high tops. Like everybody has these sweet space high tops on. Like, did you guys notice that? I was like, what the heck? Like why? I call my wife. She loves high tops. Like she loves, um, all of those like Jordans and stuff. So I call them her space shoes. They legitimately have those sweet space high tops in this movie. I was like, huh, there you go, honey. They're like the back to the future shoes. Yeah. I couldn't (laughs) believe that. Uh, And then two in the future, apparently everybody still smokes like chimneys in an enclosed area, which made no sense to me because on a ship, you're going to have to constantly be recycling that air. Why would smoking be allowed on a ship? I don't get it. (laughs) It just, yeah, it didn't make it's a different sense. time, Matt. It's a different time. It's it, you're absolutely right. You know, the seventies and eighties. You know, uh, everybody could light up wherever they wanted. So, I know. I still get surprised when I watch older movies, and I'm like, everyone is smoking. It's just everyone. crazy. And you're right. In an enclosed space, it did not make sense. But well, I when know. I went down to Vegas for the convention, like you guys in the states, there you can still smoke in casinos. Oh, that's just here in Las Vegas. Is that Vegas. just Las, Las Vegas? Las Vegas is a smoke smoke. Oh, okay, because yeah, in Saskatchewan in Canada here, like I don't go to the casino very often, but I mean, you, you can't smoke anywhere indoors. They've uh, had a couple, as a side note, tangent, that never happens. <laughs> um, but they've been, past couple of years, have been wanting to pass the Clean Air Act and it just never mm. passes. Yeah, it's because the casinos would lose a lot of money if people couldn't smoke in them. So, Right. Uh, you know, it's interesting you say this. Uh, yeah, total tangent. But when I was back in Dallas over the holidays at Christmas time, uh, there are still bars inside like a Chili's restaurant, like basic Chili's, that the bar area, which is mostly enclosed, has a smoking in it. Yeah. Really? Totally I did not know that. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, I live here in the Northwest now, and that would never happen. Um, you know, right. you can go to a cigar bar on purpose, you know, but yeah. Right. So, yeah. That was very interesting to me. So, I, yeah, uh, if, if I'm watching Mad Men, it makes sense that everybody's smoking. It's the 60s, right? Uh, when I watch Alien or something like that to see all these people in the future, they're still smoking like chimneys. It was, I was like, oh, yeah, I guess they did. They, they legitimately, there's nothing about this movie that's fantastical or in the future, really, other than they're in space. The rest of it is just straight up the 70s. <laughs> well, it's like so. when they run to the plane on uh, Home Alone and they're late for their ride and they're like, hold the plane! <laughs> you know, like, don't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true too. Well, Brandon, something I know that's really interesting for you, obviously uh, another great Star Trek connection, Jerry Goldsmith, who scores Star Trek, the motion picture this same year, also scores Alien. 
and not the person that they originally wanted, but 20th Century Fox wants a bigger name. And so Alan Ladd Jr., who has the great connection with Star Wars, recommends Goldsmith. And he has this wonderful idea of wanting to open up the movie with this sense of romanticism and this kind of mystery, lyrical beauty, and then get creepy. And Ridley Scott hates it. Yeah, it's it's an interesting history with this because I think this was the first film that uh, Jerry Goldsmith worked on with uh, with Ridley Scott, and he didn't like working with Ridley Scott. He said Ridley Scott didn't give him any direction, and you know they used a lot until of until he's like, no, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, until until then, and um, so he's done all his work. They used a lot of Jerry Goldsmith temp music for the film. And they even kept some of the temp music in there that they had, uh, but they really had a feel. And and he, the the movie was heavily edited after the fact, so the music ended up kind of getting we call it now needle dropped, like it was placed in the movie because it was designed for a scene that was X long, and then the scene got edited after the fact. So now that music doesn't fit that scene anymore. So there was a lot of that in there. So Jerry Goldsmith didn't have a really good time with him. After this, he he worked on him with Legend. And in the United uh, in the United States, it, no, it was that it was either in the United States or Europe. They completely threw out Jerry Goldsmith's score for Legend and replaced it with Tangerine Dream. You know, so like he did not like working with uh, with Ridley Scott at all, and it was not a not a good experience for Goldsmith. Um, this score, however, though I do want to make a Star Trek connection here, had a very big influence on Ron Jones who did 42 episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation music. And if you go back to Melodic Treks number 43, I do an analysis of the data lore score from season one of The Next Generation, and that score is actually very influenced by the Alien score. Well, and it was interesting, too, because, you know, I, I love movie scores, and, uh, you know, we've I, I was on Melodic Treks with you as we raved about, uh, you know, uh, Star Trek VI and, and uh, Cliff Edelman, uh, but one of the things that I found fascinating that is that this score on you know iTunes is only ten tracks long, mm-hmm. and that there was like you said, there's all this background stuff happening with the score that uh, you know things got edited and re-edited. There's tracks that were never used. It's just a mess. And um, yeah, I wasn't actually super and and you know I. And, Forgive me if I'm offending anyone who loves Jerry Goldsmith's score here, but I wasn't super impressed with the score. You and need to get that, the, uh, the Entrada release. Yeah, um, as I don't think, uh, I think him not being able to kind of do what he wanted for the film, it kind of hurt at least the creativity that I hear in the score now. Um you know, I think he had an idea of what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it. And basically, they're just like, we want it creepy the whole time. And and he was bored with that. And so I don't, I don't, it didn't, I knowing Goldsmith from all of his other work, it didn't feel like he put his whole heart and soul into this one. And I don't blame him for the way he was treated. So, I mean. I personally, I like the score for the movie a lot. And I think it fits it really well. And it's part of what makes it really creepy for me is that the music is so quiet and almost beautiful in a lot of parts. You know, like that opening scene when you're when you've got the credits going on, and the the long opening shot of the ship waking up, like that's really beautiful music, and it puts you in a really interesting tone, right? And I think the music fits it really well. Um, if the iTunes release is only ten tracks, that is the original vinyl release, like that's just the transfer of the vinyl release. And Intrada released a two disc album. Um, and so the second disc has the 10 tracks from the original album. There's a bunch of bonus tracks, which are alternate cues and stuff. But the first track is, uh, it's mu- or the first disc is much longer. It's, it's got 60 minutes almost of the original score that Jerry Goldsmith had composed, plus some more rescored and alternate oh, cues nice. and stuff. So, uh, so the disc one is the complete original recordings that Jerry Goldsmith, uh, had put together, which is, so it's a beautiful release by Entrada. Uh, so I definitely recommend that for music fans. Yeah, I might have to go try and find that then and, and give that a listen because that can sometimes happen too. And, and that's also just a whole other subject about the way in which album companies do such a horrible job sometimes of releasing soundtrack yeah. scores in the first place and not just giving you a more complete score in the first place. And it can kind of really ruin it. And then sometimes they'll mix up the tracks so that it's not even in chronological order for the movie. And so you're just not really sure even what you're listening to. And, ugh. 
Don't get me started. Uh, cause I could go on a whole tangent. Episode two and three, but, Matt, episode two and three. Yeah. Well, it <laughs> happened specifically ep- mostly to episode two. It's the worst with that. Um, but you're absolutely right. And the same thing for episode three is neither of those have a complete recording score, even though every other single film, uh, well, I guess seven doesn't really, mm-hmm. they release some extra tracks online and you had to go anyway, whole other subject. Um, <laughs> We'll talk about that one day on a on a soundtrack show. We'll just talk about soundtracks one day, Brandon, on Six Hundred Two Club. Nice. But I, okay, so I wanted to ask you guys. For, so for me, this is going to be a really interesting exercise. But what would you rate Alien? Especially now, um, for for you know all of us, kind of coming back to the movie after maybe a while of not seeing it. Where does this fall for you? What do you think of the film now that we've rewatched it for the show? You go ahead, Amy. Okay. Well, I think part of it comes with your bias. And like you, Matthew, I just, I don't get into the horror, the scary shows. So for me, it's going to be rated a little lower just because of the style of the movie doesn't excite me as much. Um, so I will, I was thinking a generous seven, um, just because again, it's so scary. And even I watched it two weeks ago and I just, was scared and had my blanket right up next to me. And I just, (laughs) but I did, I liked it and I was watching it with my brother and he loves the aliens movies. And so, you know, and then he's like, okay, well we got to watch the next one. And so then we watched the next one and then that led into the next one. We got to, I said, no, I can't watch anymore. It's too late. You know, two movies in a row is enough, but um, it was, it was very good. And like we've discussed, like it the reason it was scary was because it was so realistic. And it, I, yeah, so a, a generous seven. Generous seven. Ouch. Ouch. I am not taking any math tests from you because if that's a generous score, oh, dear. <laughs> I love this movie. She's probably given it seven out of 10, right, Amy? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, see? Sounds like a seven out of a hundred the way you're talking about it here. <laughs> so generous. <laughs> I love this movie. I've always loved this movie. Um, even looking at it now, trying to analyze it as a new watcher, the couple of things that don't work for me, uh, I, I can still forgive uh, because the movie is so beautiful and it's so well made. Um, I don't know. What, did you guys watch the theatrical cut or the director's cut? Do you know? I watched the theatrical cut because I asked uh, the one and only Mike Schindler yeah, from the, the network cut. here. Then he said theatrical cut's the only way to go. He said director's cut was something that Scott was forced to do and didn't really want to do, but he did himself because he was like, well, if they're going to change it, it might as well be me. Right. So. The only difference between the theatrical cut and the director's cut is the, th- the director's cut is actually 47 seconds shorter because, but there's an extra scene, well, two extra scenes in it, and uh, the reason why it's shorter is because he actually tightens up the editing a lot, and a lot of the long shots that he has in it, he actually cuts down quite a bit. I so I like the theatrical cut for that. In the in the director's cut, there is a really cool scene right near the end, uh, right before um, she gets onto the ship, and she comes across the captain, like all the other people, and they're like in some kind of gooey mess that the alien has trapped them in, like it's going to eat them later or something like that. And Tom Skerritt's character is still alive. And he looks at her and he says, kill me, kill me. And so she like burns them all. And the only reason I like the scene is because if you go to Alien Resurrection, there's an almost mirror scene in Alien Resurrection when she comes across her own clones. So it's a really interesting Bookend for the spoiler four. alert. So yeah, spoiler alert for the movie we won't cover on the show here. Um, and then there's a scene when she comes towards the 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 medical bay after they let um, the guy on that had the face hugger on. Veronica Cartwright character gives Sigourney Weaver a big slap, like and she really slaps her and is like really mad at her because she was going to leave them outside the ship. Uh, so there's, that scene was added in as well, but the rest of it was just cut down. But yeah, watch the theatrical cut. I think this movie is frightening. I think it's well paced, and I give this movie nine out of ten face hugs. This movie is tough because there's a lot in the movie that's iconic, and there's a lot that's going to go on and become kind of a hallmark and a benchmark for sci-fi, sci-fi horror, 
I mean, it, it, this movie is kind of a game changer. All that in mind, um, one thing I didn't mention earlier, I, Sigourney Weaver goes back for the freaking cat. Oh, geez. Her, her life is in danger, and, and so is the entire ship, but she's going to spend five minutes looking for the freaking cat. I was done. I was like, no. I thought you were the smartest person on the ship. No, now you're the dumbest person on the ship. Uh, no offense to anybody who loves cats. Cats are evil. And an- animals are great, <laughs> but in a life and death situation, there, I think that you have a a responsibility to the crew that's still alive and yourself to not die for a cat. That's just what I'm saying. Uh, but if she felt that there was a chance to save the no. cat, then you no. should. Yes, as a cat <laughs> no. lover, I appreciated that. And I think it was very good to put in the Cats movie. are evil. Well, I, Name me one supervillain that had a dog. I, I'm glad that they we all have, have cats. The, the disagreement here. Um, but it just bothered me because of the movie being so <laughs> intense. And then we have this breaking of the almost tension with this ridiculousness of going after a cat. And a, it just didn't make any sense to me. I think... You know, I'm like you, Amy. I don't love horror films in the first place, but this movie isn't really a horror movie to me. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm not scared by any of it. It's not scary. Uh, there's some wonderful shots in the movie. You get the famous scene where she, it, the, you get the blinking lights that Ridley Scott loves to do. You know, the strobe effect, and she kind of looks over. You know, and it's that famous scene. And there's some great stuff in there. Okay, can I interrupt for a second here, Matt? I got to interrupt. Sure. Nothing in this movie scares you. When when no, the captain no, is not, going through yeah. those air ducts. No, it's not scary. And that and they just turns his light and the alien's arms are just like blah. <laughs> like that that, that no, scares the I, pants I, off I, me every time. I, I think <laughs> I think part of it is that like I and it's nothing against this movie because I'm sure at the time it was scarier, but like I guess I've just seen too many movies and that like I know what's gonna happen. <laughs> And not just because I've seen it before, because I legitimately didn't remember most of this movie watching it. But there's just something about the movie, and, and as interesting as it is, as iconic as it is, as as much as I can intellectually think through all of the things we talked about and, and what this movie does for film and all of that, there's something about it that doesn't touch me in any way. Like, you know, that thing that where you, a movie kind of grabs you and it makes it something that you love. And, you know, I'm going to take it from Mike Schindler and, and John Mills, uh, and I'm just going to say, I'm going to be okay with saying, I don't love this movie. Uh, you know, I'm just going to be okay with it. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't reach me. And that's okay. That's just where I am. Uh, and, you know, so to me, you know, this is, you know, three and a half out of five abandoned eggs you know like it's it's just uh it's it's good it's iconic i can i can recognize all the greatness about all that kind of stuff but when i watch it i was kind of bored and i know that sounds weird and people are going to be like they'll yell at me on on facebook when we drop this show and stuff and that's fine i'm not saying that nobody should like it i'm just saying that that's where i landed and just kind of honestly I can still recognize what this movie does for film, though. And I think that's always something that's good. And there's nothing wrong with the movie. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. It just, it doesn't, I don't know, Dessa doesn't really reach me. So I'm ex- I'm excited. to. Con- we're going to continue on because we're going to talk about Aliens, which I did remember really liking back in the day. So I'm interested to see that. Uh we're not going to talk about all the others because uh, it's too many alien movies talked about. I don't really enjoy <laughs> three and four. Prometheus is. If you want to know about Prometheus, um, maybe I'll let everybody know what happened to me with that movie. But it, it, I had a really bad experience, legitimately bad experience with that film uh, that landed me in the hospital. You can ask me about it later. But we That's how will scary be covering. It was. Yeah, it, well, it wasn't scary. It was, yeah. Anyway, so and then uh, we'll be covering Covenant two later on this this summer as well. So it'll be interesting because I saw the preview for that one. That one looks like classic Alien. So I, I'm not sure what they're going to do with that. But it's been a blast getting to talk through this classic film with 
both of you today and really appreciate the fact that we get to do this each and every week. We have amazing associate producers here through Patreon. Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson are fantastic people and they have been supporting this show for a very long time and the network as well. Now, this is a huge network. We do so much. There's a show almost each and every day coming out to you. There are so many downloads happening for each show, and that costs us a lot of money. And that means we really need your help. Uh, and so go over to patreon.com and see how you can become part of our team. We love giving back to you. We've got some great perks for you. You can be an associate producer on a show. You can get access to early content, exclusive content, uh, we do the patrons roundtable. There's so many different ways that we try and give back to you. But honestly, each and every little bit, it helps. It, you have no idea. That makes a huge difference. So just go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can become part of that team. Uh, now, Amy, it's been wonderful to have you here on the 602 Club for the first time. And you have recently wet your feet into the podcasting pool. So let everybody know where they can find you online and where they should be listening to you. Well, I am a co-host on Earl Grey, Truck FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. And loving it so much. Have a great time with Richard and Lee, who are uh, my co-hosts. And uh, we really enjoy hanging out at the Babel Conference, and that's on the Facebook group. So I'm there a lot, and I, because of this podcasting world, started a Twitter account, so you can follow me there, at Miss Amy Nelson, and I tweet about the things I'm watching, which I just recently tweeted about Alien. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. That's so great. And it's great to have you as part of the podcasting family and the 602 Club family now. Oh, thank you. Yeah. No, fantastic. Uh, Brandon, before we get out of here, before Ruby kicks us out because we're making too much noise, uh, I, I, I feel something coming out of oh, my stomach. It feels really... Come on, man. The know, food's not that bad. Brandon, maybe you should just tell everybody where they can find you. You can find me on Twitter at Brandon Metella. You can find me here on the network with new episodes of Melodic Treks, which is all about the music of Star Trek, as well as on Warp 5, co-hosting with Floyd. And I got to say, even if you guys are not an Enterprise fan, you should check out what we're doing over there on Warp 5. We've had some really awesome interviews over the last little bit. We just had an outstanding interview drop with Tucker Smallwood. So please go check that out. It's a really moving and inspirational interview. And uh, we've got one coming up very short with uh, Phyllis Strong, who's one of the writers on the show. Um, and you can find me every once in a while in the Babel Conference. But coming soon, coming very soon, uh, me and a couple of friends uh, are going to be doing an Alfred Hitchcock podcast called Good Evening. And you can follow me there on Good Evening Pod on Twitter. And we're also on Facebook at Good Evening Podcast. Awesome, man. Uh, well, this is uh, going to kick off a very busy time for the 602 Club. So I hope you are paying attention to myself on Twitter at MattRushing02 and, of course, uh, Trek, uh, at TrekFM. Yeah, you're, we're going to have so much coming out for you. Uh, next week, we're going to start off. Uh, we're going to be kicking off with uh, Rebels Season 3. We're going to review that for you. We're going to have our new Bond episode. We're going to have Iron Fist coming out as a supplemental. Uh, we're going to have Ghosts in the Shell, and we're going to be talking about uh, some Star Wars books as well. And Thor to Dark World. That's right. We're going to have, like, I mean, just, there were so many things coming out. And I didn't want you guys to miss it out. So I'm just going to work double time to get it to you. So just make sure you're you're following me there. You can find me on Instagram at mrushing02. I'm also, when I'm not doing all that stuff, I am here on the network with Chris Jones. We're crossed fingers, everybody. We're hoping to be back soon, talking about the orb, talking about Deep Space Nine. So make sure you keep following Chris and I as we, we get everybody ready for when we can come back. So just keep your you know your good thoughts and your prayers coming for Chris that he keeps to getting better. We want to be back doing the show for you guys. You can also find me on the Nerd Party Network doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills. We talk about Star Wars. And we do it in a way that's it's like you and a buddy sitting down talking Star Wars over a beer or milkshake and burgers. I mean that's that's what we do and it's so much fun. Uh, also check out uh, Owlpost, a Harry Potter podcast I do with Trey Kaufman, where we're talking about Harry Potter. 
We're going through the books, each and every single chapter of Harry Potter. So make sure that you follow us there. It's it's a blast. We have a lot of fun. All of those shows are on iTunes for a go over. Give us a star rating and review on all of them. We really appreciate it. And I want to say thank you so much for listening. And y'all come back now, you hear? 